Dearly Father, we are reminded through your word that when left to our own devices, when we pursue our own passions, that those things will lead towards destruction. They lead to death. Lord, you have warned us in so many ways, and you plead with us to heed your counsel, to heed your commands, for your commands lead to life. They lead to righteousness. They lead to joy and peace. But our ways, the way of Satan, the way of our flesh, the way of sin leads to death. We saw that demonstrated in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, a whole city consumed with sin, and it, in the end, consumed it literally with fire, for death is the result of sin left unrepentant before our God. So, Lord, let us humble ourselves. Let us recognize your goodness, your patience. Even with Lot, we see you pleading with him, warning him, and then forcefully removing him against his own will, for he desired to remain in that city. But in your great mercy, your angels moved them out of the city. Lord, let us heed the words that you share with us. Let us not be like Lot's wife. Instead of listening to the angel's warning, she chose to look back, and she chose to not consider the words of truth that you had to share with her. And so, Lord, we thank you once again that you are a good, kind, and gracious Lord. And it's in these promises and in the work that you did on the cross that we move forward with confidence of the hope, of the faith that you have promised to all of us. In your name we pray. Amen. I have to confess that if I was to choose a book of the Bible to read or to um, focus on in my own time in the Lord, I don't think I would focus on uh, Jude. In fact, to be honest, whenever Jude would come up in my scripture reading plan, I would most likely go past it rather quickly, not giving it much sense, kind of like how I handle Exodus or Numbers or sometimes Deuteronomy, whenever they get into those long lists, you know, or perhaps the attitude I have when I come up to Psalm 119 and anticipate this lengthy time within an area. I like to feel like I'm making progress. And so when we chose to preach on Jude, it forced me to give it attention and time. And I found that I was actually very blessed by taking a second or third glance at this book more more intensely, more deeply. And so I hope that as we look at the book of Jude for the next coming weeks, that you too will be strengthened and encouraged uh, through reading this scripture, that you will recognize the importance of this holy faith that we have been gifted with and uh, that we will not take it lightly. Uh, When I was... uh, thinking about my own attitude towards the book of Jude, it made me remember a commercial that some of you might be familiar with. This is going a a little bit back in time. But do any of you remember the Tootsie Pops? All right. And 
and uh, Mr. Owl and the curious boy who wanted to know how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. And I don't know about you, but I always felt like Mr. Owl didn't quite do justice to that question. And as that boy gave his lollipop over to Mr. Owl, he would get one lick in, two lick in, and then at the third lick, he just bit it off. I'm like, that's not really what I consider a lick. And he would tell the boy it takes three licks to get to the center of the Tootsie Pop. Well, I realized in my preparation for Jude that when I just casually glance over the book, it's like taking a short path towards the center, towards the core of of enjoying what is to be uncovered in this book. It's like me just biting into the center of the Tootsie Pop rather than actually persevering, enduring, digging deeper and licking it repetitively, coming back to it, meditating on it, praying over it and thinking about it. And so as I did that, I found that there is great joy to be gleaned. There's great wisdom and insight to be gleaned from this book of Jude. In fact, there's great joy that can be gleaned from any book of scripture if we're willing to take the time to labor through it. And I believe that that is exactly a true characteristic of the author that we find in Jude. Uh, In the first verse, Jude referenced himself as the servant of the Lord. I probably don't have to really expound on the nature of a servant. A servant is someone who is willing to labor over his master's words, to consider them deeply, to let them rest with a heavy sense over his heart. So we see Jude is a man who would endure and persevere through the whole counsel of God in Scripture. And that is what's influencing his letter, or or it actually looks almost more characteristic of a sermon in the way it uh, plays out uh, to his fellow believers. And so that's kind of what I want to challenge us through the next couple weeks, is that we would also labor through this book, look at it deeply, and I would encourage you to be reading it uh, in between Sundays. Uh, and not just come each morning, uh, because what you're going to receive when you show up here in the morning is a partially licked Jude, okay? Uh, I've already digested part of this book, and now I'm regurgitating it. Uh, Hopefully you guys haven't had your breakfast soon. Uh, Back to you, okay? Uh, But I encourage you to dive into this yourself, and look into this, and see what you can also uh, glean from uh, this book that we have to share. And so my big idea for this morning is going to play off of that theme of a a servant. Jude identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see is that the servant of Jesus Christ demonstrates godly character. And in demonstrating that godly character, he also receives God's blessing. However, that thought is going to be contrast because most of the book is going to focus on judgment to the false teacher. And so we see false teachers in contrast to those who are, uh, God, are chosen by God and are, have godly character. The false teachers demonstrate immorality and therefore they receive God's judgment. So as we look at this first verse, we see that a servant of Christ finds his identity in Christ. And what's particularly interesting, although many characters throughout scripture will look at uh, their, their introduction, and they will have similar language, a servant of the Lord, a servant of Jesus Christ. This isn't a new term or a new phrase or concept. It's actually used pretty frequently throughout the Old Testament, and then more specifically, it's usually the servant of the Lord in the 
Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, you start to see the servant of Jesus Christ, okay? And so in that phrase is actually a term or a phrase of honor, all right? The prophets, Moses, David, were honored to be called the servant of the Lord. Jude here presents himself also as honored to be called the servant of the Lord. But one thing that I found interesting in Jude's introduction is that he goes on to introduce himself not only as a servant of the Lord, but also as the brother of James. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see that there's most likely, and most theologians would say that this James is the brother of Jesus and the man who pastored the church in Jerusalem. All right, so let's read uh, these seven verses, and then we're going to work through them verse by verse. And you'll see this unfold as he identifies, and, and we learn more about Jude himself, but also about his audience and the purpose of his message. Uh, so I'm going to read through these first seven verses together, and then we'll work through them each one at a time. So, Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. That was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. When you start off with the scripture passage in Sunday morning reading from Sodom and Gomorrah, you know it's going to be a little heavy, okay? And there are some heavy warnings out there. But I want you to take comfort because in addressing these heavy warnings, we're going to recognize that the warnings are geared towards those who are not called the beloved in God, but to those who identify as false teachers and seek to pervert the gospel, seek to pervert the grace of God. So this should be a source of encouragement that you are safe in the arms of God, kept by Jesus Christ. If you know him as your Savior, if you are the servant of the Lord, but it's a wake-up call to those who might not know him as their personal Savior and a warning to not prolong a separation from him, but to draw yourself near and to repent before the Lord. So a servant of Christ finds his identity in Christ. Jude addresses himself in that manner, but I believe that this is a very significant, not just a casual introduction to himself, because of the fact that he chose not to identify himself first as the brother of Jesus. 
Notice that James is the brother of Jesus. So by default, we could say that Jude is also the brother of Jesus. In fact, if you look in the Gospels, you will see all four brothers of Jesus listed by name. And Jude is included in that listing. But that's not how he chooses to identify himself. Not as a brother of Jesus, but as a servant. Because of his identity in Christ and his position before Christ leads him to that of serving him. Different than that of a brother. Okay? And so we see this characteristic of humility identified within Jude, which is also true in the mind of Christ. We know that from Philippians 2. and should be true in every believer. That humility is the defining characteristic of those who identify with Christ. There's also an element here uh, that um, Jude, his identity in Christ, is what builds towards the passion he has in confronting the false teachers. And I want to kind of have you see that as it develops. But first I want to identify his, his audience. So Jude identifies himself first as the servant of Christ, and secondly as a brother of Jesus. But he also identifies his audience, and he, he considers them to be part uh, of his own family in sharing of that common salvation so in verse 2, as we read, it says that these are the beloved in God the Father, okay? And that they are sharing with him in this common salvation, which he was eager to share or to celebrate with his family in Christ. So this is definitely an a audience of believers. In fact, a lot of people think that this is most likely a Jewish church uh, because a lot of the uh, references he uses in history are, are, are drawn from the Old Testament. So the audience would have been very familiar with the Old Testament. In fact, he even goes beyond that, and Drew will kind of expound a bit more next week, but he references uh, books outside of Scripture itself, but would have been very common or familiar to the Jewish audience. Uh, books that they were familiar with as the books of Enoch or uh, the Testament of Moses. And so these books are also referenced by Jude, not as scripture, but as historic references that his Jewish audience would have been familiar with. So this is some of the audience that we're looking at. And one of my aspects of comfort that I found uh, in pursuing this is that the audience is contrasted with those that he is actually speaking about. So James goes through the effort to draw a very strong contrast between the beloved in God and the false teachers. And most of the content of this book is going to focus, the main body of it is going to focus on these false teachers and instructing the church and those who are beloved by God on how to deal with false teachers or why to be so cautious uh, or, or, or aware of the danger that these false teachers present. Uh, it's really just the introduction, those first few verses that we read, and then the conclusion again that talks about um, the blessings and benefits of being the body or addresses more specifically uh, those who are believers in Christ. So his identity draws him uh, to this aspect of wanting to be a defender of the faith. See, he embraces his identity in Christ and his identity in Christ moves him to then defend his faith, defend what he cherishes, what he holds dear, all right? And not to deal lightly with those who might attack the faith that he cherishes so much. And so a servant of Christ defends the faith. And, and that is exactly what Jude calls 
the beloved to do. In fact, in verse 3, we see that his desire originally was not to call them to contend for the faith. His desire originally was to celebrate. In verse 3, it says that he was eager to write to them about the common salvation. Now, I can identify with that. Typically, I'm more excited about celebrating something I love than having to defend or fight against those who are my enemies, who place themselves against me, position themselves against me. Even though I'm a counselor, I actually don't really like conflict. <laughs> okay? In fact, think about this. I work in an occupation where I don't have to confront people, but people come to me and invite me into their confrontation because I would be that much more hesitant to confront them if they hadn't invited me into the conflict. And so me taking initiative to contend for the faith or to confront someone in a conflict is actually against my nature. And so these words that, that uh, Jude is sharing with the church, these are probably words I would have to hear too. And he would have to call me to arm as well. And so Jude calls the believers to contend for the faith, to defend the things that they cherish and hold dear to, and not to give them up lightly. And in this process, I, I looked at these thoughts of, of this word of contend and, and also the word of the, the eager aspects. And with eager to share or celebrate in the common faith, that's an aspect of agonizing over something that they love, you know, almost consumed by. So he's consumed about this common salvation. And that leads to the need to address this imminent danger quickly. And, and, and drastically to take these strong measures. I thought, as I reflected about what would be the equivalent, what would stir me up, get me passionate about defending or, get, or preparing to fight? And as I thought about it, it, it probably would be my family. You know, and, and I think most of you can probably relate to that too. You know, it, we're allowed to make short you know, jabs or attacks at our family, but when anyone else messes with our family, you know, we all of a sudden, it's not okay. We go up to, to defend, and, and honestly, we shouldn't make short jabs at our family. We should treat them always with love. But it's funny how we're more comfortable doing that, but not as comfortable when others do it. We become very defensive. And so I have in this picture in my mind of a father. Jude views himself as a father to these people, as a spiritual father, perhaps, as an elder or pastor over them, and he's sharing them this sermon just like a father who loves, who's eager to share in his common affections towards his family and to celebrate those affections. But when danger is at the door, the father is not ignorantly inside celebrating with his family. He's preparing for an intruder. He's arming himself to defend those that he loves. So Jude calls us, defend the very grace, the very character of God that is under attack, that you love and that you cherish. There is imminent danger. And this sense of contending requires us to assert ourselves. Can't be passive in this. We have to assert ourselves. And it also calls us to enter into the struggle. This isn't the idea or the concept that danger is potentially present. No, this idea of contend means that it is in and amongst us, and we must wrestle with it. We must fight with it now. Engagement has occurred. The enemy has already sent over the first fire, okay? So now we have to engage. We have to struggle. And I, when I was thinking about this concept of uh, the struggle, uh, I also thought about the aspect of, um, of uh, uh, Jacob wrestling with God. 
You know, that gives a good picture, you know. So Jacob is there wrestling with God because he wants a blessing from God. And it's engaged. It's full body contact, all right. It's laborsome. And, and he will not give up. That's what I'm thinking about this condemning. It's like running the marathon and your refusal to walk. I'm going to run this whole thing. Not going to give up. So it's wrestle, it's endurance, it's perseverance. And that is what we are called to battle against. And the enemy that we're contending with is identified specifically here as the, um, uh, the false teachers. Uh, and so it's, it's important to remember. In fact, I would, I, would, I would draw maybe the assumption that as Jude is calling the church to contend for the faith, He's not doing so simply because he loves the church, but because he is aware of the larger body or context of all of Scripture. Uh, He is aware of of God's position towards those who rebel against him, who choose not to uh, submit to his authority. And so Jude is aware of it, and that's why he brings up all these historic experiences. He's aware of that danger. In fact, it made me think very much of Peter's warning. I don't know if, uh, if, if First or Second Peter had already been written, if Jude had a copy of that or not, uh, but he would have been a contemporary and probably very familiar with Peter as being a disciple of Christ and Jude being a brother of Christ. So they probably had had multiple conversations and were very, they both were most likely very aware of the danger of their enemy known as the devil, Satan himself, and those who would follow him. And that's why I wonder if, if that warning in Second Peter wasn't somewhat influential in Jude's instruction here. That Peter is telling them, do you not know that your enemy, the devil, is like a lion? All right? Prowling about, waiting for your defenses to be down so that he can attack and consume those who are not prepared. Those who are not equipped with the spiritual armor that God teaches us about in Ephesians 6. All right? We are not called to contend to the faith ill-equipped to actually accomplish a task. We are equipped. Ephesians 6 instructs us specifically on the spiritual armor that God has given us to defend ourselves against the faith and to uh, uh, defend ourselves against the attacks of the devil and perhaps the attacks of our own flesh and our sinful nature as well. So we are equipped. And I would like to think that that is one reason Jude is calling this church to arms, calling these believers uh, to arm themselves. I thought it was also interesting when he started to expound on the character of, uh, of these false teachers or some of uh, their behaviors. In fact, let's read uh, verses 4 again, and we can draw out some of these characteristics that we see. It says that, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Think about that. What, who does that make you think about? Who else do we read about in Genesis who crept in unnoticed, who disguised himself as if he belonged in the garden already, right? Satan, the serpent, creeps in as a created being in order to diffuse the feeling of danger for Adam and Eve. Perhaps the serpent was a familiar sight, all right? They, I mean, they, uh, Adam had already named all the animals, so Adam would be familiar with serpents, okay? So he creeps in in a form that won't alarm Adam and Eve. And then he seeks to pursue them or persuade them 
that he has their best interests at heart. Much like these false teachers most likely crept in to the church, crept into the fellowship of close believers, saying a lot of the things that made them feel like one of them, talking as if they were a servant of the Lord, yet behaving quite differently than what would have been characteristic of a servant of the Lord. You see, as soon as the serpent started to attack the very character of God, Adam and Eve should have gone on to alert. They should have been like, whoa, something's not right here. All right, looks like a serpent, you know, talks like a serpent, if they talked, but is acting very different than what a created being of God would do because we all know that all of creation is meant to glorify and honor God, not contradict him. And a believer, a servant of the Lord, would not go against his own master's teaching. So these false teachers are exposed by their immoral character. They could talk the talk, but their actions said something very different. In fact, their actions here, characterized by immorality, uh, by, by their sensuality, um, is what is, is determined as designating them to a condemnation. You see, as we read in the story from uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, we see how God handles sensuality. If you remember the story of Noah's Ark, you see how God handles immorality. Okay? He judges it because it is not true to his character. And so in that component, these individuals were self-condemned because as we saw and as they mentioned, these individuals were familiar with the teachings of the Old Testament. They were familiar with the teachings of the apostles. So they should have known better. And in their knowledge, they condemned themselves by not embracing and representing the true grace of God. And so they were self-condemned in that process. And in fact, if you read through many of the epistles, it warns of false teachers and it talks about their own condemnation that they brought about themselves uh, in that process. And so what are some of the examples that we see drawn out uh, through this illustration um, of the false teachers and the judgment that they will receive. So there are three Old Testament references we see in uh, verses 5 through 7. But before we jump to there, because it can, it can be very easy to point out the immoral character in others. Okay? And that's what we're about to do. We're going to look at the Israelites who seem to be the scapegoat for immorality uh, and, and, and a great example of what not to do. But let us not forget that we would be just as good of an example for Jude to use in his sermon to the believers because of our own immorality, because of our own perversion of the grace. You see, we are not perfect. And it can be easy to think that everyone else is perversing the grace of God except for me. But as we know from Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and Jesus' confrontation to the very heart of the individual, to the very motives behind our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions, that those defile us, that those make us guilty and worthy of judgment, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? So I would challenge you, before we look at these Old Testament examples, reflect in your own heart. What passions, what desires, what thoughts are contrary to the grace of God, are contrary to the very character and nature of God? 
that we need to go to him and repent for and how thankful we ought to be that he has provided a way for us to be restored back to him, that we can ask for his forgiveness, that we can restore our relationship with him and remain in a good standing with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so consider yourselves also in this warning and make sure that you keep a short account of your offenses and a close eye, a microscope on your own heart instead of the hearts of everyone else. You know, because we're also learning in Scripture that no man knows the heart or the mind of another man. All right, so you might think you can judge other people's motives, but Scripture says we're not that great at it. Leave it to God. Let's just work at judging our own motives uh, and, and, and go from there. So as we look at these false teachers who will receive judgment, three examples are given to warn them and to urge the church to defend the faith, to contend for the faith. And these three examples we can find in the Old Testament. Some of them are even expounded on in in the book of Enoch or the Testament of Moses uh, that I had mentioned before. Uh, And so the first one that we're going to look at is Israel's rebellion against God's command in Numbers 14. Now, pastors actually reference this multiple times in his messages from Hebrews. This is a story where Caleb and Joshua, like all the other spies, are sent in, but only Caleb and Joshua come back ready to trust God and obey him and begin the assault on Jericho. The whole nation, though, is against them, and they rebel. They choose not to obey. What does that say? When we choose not to obey the commands of God, what is that saying? That is saying, I don't believe God. I don't trust him. In fact, it's even going bolder than that. It's saying that I know better. So when the Israelites said no to God, they said, my way is better. I don't trust you. I don't think you're competent enough to lead this attack on Jericho. So we're going to do it our own way. Now, the Israelites changed their heart when they heard of their consequence. Now, I'm sure you can think back to your own childhood. And if you've had children, maybe there are even fresher memories of uh, how a child's heart changes whenever they hear the consequences that are going to come because of their disobedience. Right? I have noticed that in my own heart. In fact, I would frequently, because I'm not a person who can endure much persecution probably or discipline, that at the sound of my father's warning or my mother's warning, that I was about to get a spanking, I would break out in tears. <laughs> Even before any physical experience had occurred, the fear, the anticipation of it already changed me and put me in a position of fear, you know, in that process. And, and like that, we see the Israelites. As soon as they hear of their consequence, all of a sudden, they're sorry. You know, they're not sorry because they don't believe in God. They're not sorry because they attack the very nature of God. They're sorry because they're going to get a consequence as was I so many times, afraid of the consequence, not of my attack against the authority and character of my own parents. Okay? And so in this situation, we see that. And what's interesting in Numbers 14 is that they try to redeem themselves back into a good standing of God. And God says, no, you can't do that. But they don't listen. And they go out into battle on their own terms, again, not obeying and trusting God, and they get massacred. And the important lesson here is that as sinners, we don't get to choose our path towards redemption. 
All right, we're disqualified. We're unable to reconcile ourselves back to God on our terms. We have to meet him on his terms. It didn't work for the Israelites. It doesn't work for my children. It didn't work for me when I was a child. And it doesn't work to this day. You cannot come to God on your terms for redemption. You must approach him on his terms. And the Israelites had to learn that lesson the hard way. Creation is called to trust and obey their creator. Not to disobey or not to uh, flee from him. And the second illustration he gives there is with angels. All right? Now, this one is a bit more complex. Uh, people reference Genesis 6 has a situation talking about the story of Noah and about the corruption that had occurred uh, within not just humanity, but even the angels uh, were having relationships uh, with humans. And that was not part of God's original plan. In fact, in Matthew twenty-two thirty, 30, we know that God's plan wasn't for angels to enter into relationships or to be married because in Matthew twenty-two thirty, 30, it says that in our new bodies, we will be like angels and we will not be given into marriage. All right, so Jesus gives us direct teaching that the actions that the angels were partaking in were against his authority, were against his order for creation. And we are called as the creation to accept the natural order and authority of our creator. Authority is a difficult thing for us to embrace as, huma- as humans, as Americans, right? We just celebrated our Independence Day, which kind of says we want to separate ourselves from being dependent upon perhaps our authority. Now, there is a time and place when authority is corrupt, okay? And authority does not seek to uh, support the will of our Heavenly Father, the Creator. So our earthly authorities can rebel against God. And so that causes us to then have to discern when our earthly authorities are not submitting or not being wise and following the Lord, then we have to discern for ourselves with Christ how we ought to respond and behave. But typically, God wants us to work within the authority order that he's given. And you think about some of the environments where you experience authority, all right? We experience authority in our government. We experience authority at our workplaces, all right? Authority in our church. And we experience authority in our homes, multiple realms of authority, and God has given each realm different responsibilities, all right? I have some authority over my family that I'm responsible for and that I will give an account to God for that, that the church is not necessarily responsible for or the government is not necessarily responsible for. I have to answer for that. And the church has some authority and responsibilities over me and my family that I do not have, all right? As well as the government, you know? And so uh, those, it's important to understand those realms of authorities and to support them and obey them when they are in line and not trying to defy the ultimate authority, which is Christ himself. And when that happens, it puts us in a very difficult situation because then we have to remove ourselves under authority that does not seek God and place ourselves directly under Christ because authority was ultimately given to protect us, to help us. All right? I am to use my position as a husband and a father to love my family, to provide for them, to protect them, not to abuse them for my own self-interest. That's not what Christ did, is it? No, he used his position of influence 
to love and to redeem a bride to himself. So how do we use our authority to bless those, to serve those, rather than to find ways for them to serve our own interest? And the last example he gives us here in verse 7 talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, which we read already. And this is a rather um, probably most relevant example to the current context of the false teachers because the false teachers will be confronted on their immorality, their sensuality, in fact, uh, their perversion of it. It's, it's actually the word used here in verse 4 for their uh, behavior is that, uh, that they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They were literally using God's grace that we read of as a license to practice immorality. Think about that. Like Romans 6, they were saying that because God's grace has been given to us and no longer are we under the law, we may continue to sin lavishly because his grace is poured out lavishly. Paul puts that thought to end very quickly. That is not the heart of God. And that is not the heart of a servant of the Lord. We do not sin so that grace may abound more. And, and the fact that these false teachers thought they could get away with that displays that they truly did not have a heart of their Heavenly Father or the character. So they were exposed by their immorality just like Sodom and Gomorrah were exposed by their sensuality. So creation is to reflect the pure nature of the Creator, okay? Does our heart motives reflect the purity of the holiness that we are called apart to be holy as Christ is holy, is that reflected in our thoughts, in our actions, in our motives? Okay? That's what we're called to do. Let's not confuse our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and say that the Lord is our, Jesus Christ is our Lord, that we are his servant, and then act as if we are part of the world. That just adds to confusion that just brings consequences on your own life. That is no shortcut to joy. There is no peace. There is no, um, there is no reward at the end of that. Because we're reminded continually that ultimately, those who are willing to be the servant of the Lord and demonstrate godly character receive his blessings. But those who choose not to place themselves under Christ will receive his judgment as we, as we have seen and God has promised and foretold. And let that not be a sense of discouragement. God's judgment ought not to discourage us. It's actually his judgment that keeps the purity of our joy and love from being corrupted. It's the only thing that prevents us from all being condemned. All right? He did not come into the world to condemn it. The world is self-condemned. All right? Our depravity is apparent. No one had to say it. He came into the world to save it. And all we must do is to turn towards him, to repent of our sins, to embrace him as our savior. And now to live, and it's not just a one-time experience, but to live continually as Jude has called us, that we will be celebrating with our brothers and sisters about our common salvation and that we will be defending the faith continually against those who would seek to pervert the very character of God and his grace and the gospel that we love. Let those words and his truth from scripture 
motivate us to go into this week strengthened. And I challenge you to open up your Bibles throughout this week. Read the rest of Jude. Don't let it be a surprise. Don't wait till, till Drew ruins it for you next week, okay? Or Eric the following week. You can read ahead. You can, you can, you know, we know how the story ends kind of, you know? So it's not like a movie. You have to wait for it to unfold, you know, series by series. Go ahead. Take a peek at the rest of the book and, and actually think about it. Pray about it. And I promise you that it won't ruin the joy for next week when Drew continues on the message, but it would actually help you appreciate it even more than if you had not looked at it throughout the week. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that it was a heavy heart that you brought this message, but it was not a heavy heart without hope. It was a heavy heart full of hope. It was a heavy heart full of love, full of eagerness to celebrate the common salvation that brought him to defend that faith and to call out the warnings that none should be lost, that no one would be ignorant. For we know, Lord, that no one can know you except that your word is preached. For it is the words that bring the power of your salvation. Help us, Lord, now to take what we have heard and not let it go out the other ear, but that it will settle into our hearts and that we will continue to walk throughout this week holding fast to the faith that Christ has given to us. In your name we pray.